Luke chapter 1, we already heard everything that I'm going to preach because I had uh, Matt read it for us. We're going to start in verse 5, and I'm just going to break this up in in little chunks, and we'll make our way through 25. not going to deal with every little bit that's here, but we'll deal with most of it. I've, I've chosen to preach our first message on the story of Zechariah because I think it's worth noting that when you get to um, the Advent story, it has been 400 years since there's been a prophet on earth um, from the time that the Italian prophet Malici uh, finished his work to now. It, it's been 400 years, and what you have is People go on when God is silent, expecting that things will always continue as they always have. And and even the church and religious people get into habits of just doing things because, well, that's the way we do it. And then you have this great interruption in the habits of uh, even the priests who were ministering in the temple at the time. And the interruption is the announcement of the first prophet in 400 years. And I always viewed John the Baptist as like this. You ever seen uh, a, a tree that's kind of growing on a hill and at some point you'll see the root of the tree comes up out of the ground and then goes back in? You ever seen something like that? That's how I think of John the Baptist because he's, uh, he's this Old Testament prophet that makes an appearance in the New Testament and then, and then quickly disappears. Um, having accomplished his purpose, obviously. But anyway, so this is the announcement of the coming of John the Baptist, but we're going to look at Zechariah and to a lesser extent, Elizabeth. Luke 1 and 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah or Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren when both were advanced in years. We uh, have some expectation, depending on how you approach church and what your kind of personal history is, you have some expectation that God views people a certain way. And I think you can safely split that into two different views. You have this idea that God views people as basically good and they're all his children and he loves them. Or you have this idea that God views people as basically sinful and some are his children and he loves them. One of those two views is biblical uh, and and one of them is not. Um, so th- this, this we are the world, we are the children perspective on uh, the creator's relationship with his wicked, rebellious creation is false. Nowhere in scripture does it say God loves all people. Amen. Yeah, it doesn't say it. Now, my problem is guys that believe that, which I do believe that, guys that believe that seem to like celebrate it. They seem like happy that there are some people God doesn't love. And I don't understand that. And I certainly don't veer that far into that doctrinal perspective. But we do have to deal with this idea because when the New Testament text in Luke 1 says that Zechariah and Elizabeth were blameless, they walked in in blamelessness and they were righteous, Are these the only two people in the history of mankind that that can be said of? Because 
the biblical description of humanity from the moment Adam and Eve sin all the way until the birth of Jesus Christ is all have sinned. All means all when it comes to humanity, right? So, uh, and we've got time, so let's jump over to Psalm 14 real quick. Psalm 14, we'll read just the first three verses. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Remember that. Okay. That's what God says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So when you hear somebody who, and I was a Christopher Hitchens fan. I just was. I liked his intellect. I liked the way that he spoke. He thought he was funny. But he said out loud, there is no God, let alone in his heart. And so God's perspective of the one who says this is they are a fool. Uh, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Famously in Genesis, I think it's Genesis 6, uh, right before the flood account begins, the Lord looks down uh, and he sees that the only intention of men's hearts was only evil continually. I think it's Genesis 6-5 that says that. In Romans 3-23, every good uh, Christian kid knows this verse, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So why then in Luke 1 does it say that Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, descendants of the priesthood and Aaron, um, were blameless and, and were righteous? And what are we supposed to do with that? I think uh, they weren't sinless. I think the Bible talks about people being righteous before God because they were people who believe, who trust him and whose lives were a reflection of their faith. Okay? Yeah. All right, y'all are so quiet. From a human perspective, I think there are good and upright people. Yeah, I do. I think that, I mean, I think most of you are good and upright people. I'm sure you have skeletons in your closet that I don't need to know about and won't ever know about, but... From my perspective, we've got a church full of people that for the most part want to do the right thing and are loving the Lord the best they can. And I think that's pretty blameless and righteous. From a human perspective, right? Okay. Uh, so here's the other tidbit we get on Zechariah and Elizabeth. From... from from the biblical perspective, the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to write these words that they were blameless and upright. Um, but then he also tells us that in their old age, they have no children. And it's, it's not like they had had kids and lost them. She, his, Elizabeth was barren. She had been unable to conceive her entire uh, life as an adult woman. And I don't know what it's like to be childless. It must be heavy. I mean, it's got to be like a deep ache. 
Um, and I'm not trying to open any wounds for anybody in here that has suffered from that. But I think, as trouble and difficulty often do, if I were Elizabeth and Zechariah, being childless would make me wonder if God was unhappy with me. Certainly, culturally, that was the case. It was viewed as a sign that you or your parents had done something wrong. If you couldn't have kids, it was a curse. It was a reproach. And I understand they're blameless and they're, and they're righteous and they're walking in an upright way. Um, but I also understand that I can view you all as that, like decent people who love the Lord and are just living out your faith as best you can. At the same time, I know that you have moments. Oh, you have moments where you feel like uh, maybe the reason that you're struggling is because God's not happy with you. I think in that case, it makes God describing Zechariah and Elizabeth as blameless and righteous, it makes it even more instructive, doesn't it? Because if you're a Christian, your struggles, your sorrows, your suffering, the difficulties that you go through, this is so important. Those things are not punitive. Those things, those difficult things that you go through are not happening because God is seeking retribution and he's taking his wrath out on you. That is not, that is nowhere in scripture either. So when you're going through it and you're trusting God kind of the best way you know how and you experience some, some either some major like poignant or some long-lasting overall disappointment, you need to make sure that you understand this. It's not sent into your life by God as punishment. But it feels like it is, doesn't it? Because every time, I don't, unless you have a seared conscience, every time you go through something difficult, I don't have to go very many steps back to see how I contributed to it. Well, not every time, many times. I don't have to go very many steps back to see how I contributed to it. And so then, and when I say contributed to it, I mean made a bad decision, did something to make it even worse, right? And, and so then it's not a far jump from that realization to this blasphemous idea that God is vengefully afflicting you to get back at you for sinning. Because compared to God, nobody is righteous and blameless, right? So it makes sense. My suffering, I deserve it. But his heart towards those who belong to him is seen in how his word describes Zechariah and Elizabeth. Let me say that again. Because Ellie Mae was like coughing up a lung. God's heart toward those who belong to him is seen in how he describes Zechariah and Elizabeth. And how does he describe them? Upright, blameless, righteous. 
Verse 8, now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, that's a mouthful. That was a lot of verses. Um, but it paints an interesting picture. I won't get into all that's going on in the, the holy place in the temple, but there was a, a table, altar, whatever you want to call it, set aside for the burning of incense. This is not the Day of Atonement. He's not going in there sprinkling blood on the seat of atonement. This is just a, an offering of prayer to God for the redemption of the people of God. And there were so many priests in the, the community of Jerusalem at this point, you could probably make it your entire life and never be selected to go in and be the one who offers incense. The way this would have worked is several priests would have gone in together to make sure that everything was set up and then all but the one uh, who lots had been drawn to make him the selected one, all the others but him would withdraw while he lit the incense, offered the burning aroma to please God and then offer prayers for the people. Um, <clears throat> so you're in there by yourself. You finally got your moment. You start praying for the redemption of Israel and uh, an angel shows up in there with you. Zechariah was troubled. This is what I mean, though. All people tend to go along as though the way that things have been is how they will always be, myself included. We, our brains are like prediction machines, right? We're, we're always trying to anticipate outcomes. And so the things that we engage in with some degree of regularity, we just expect we know how they're going to work out. Now, in this case, to Zechariah's credit, he'd never been in there doing this before and would probably never be drawn upon to do it again. But he, had, he knows what it, what, what it is. And for 400 years, they've been doing this. Well, all right, so this temple got rebuilt uh, not that long ago. But they've been, they've been doing this nonetheless. In the holy place, they go in and, and he knows what they're going to light the incense. And, I'm gonna, and there's probably a prescriptive prayer that he's reading or praying to God. And, and then he's, when he's done, he's going to turn around and shuffle out and go home and grill some burgers or whatever, right? And there's an interruption in what he expects. And he's not overjoyed like, finally, an angel showed up. No, he's troubled because it's not uncommon for us, even in the midst of times when we've been praying diligently for some outcome, God begins to move and we get terrified. Think about the disciples uh, when Jesus sends them across the water on the boat, right? In Matthew 14, it says immediately, verse 22, if you're writing notes down, I'm not going to make you flip here. Matthew 14, 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And this is Jesus. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Cut, scene, go to the lake the sea, right? Where the disciples are out in the boat and it's being tossed around and there's a storm. And it says, 
Uh, the boat by this time was a long way from land, being beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, <clears throat> Matthew uh, is a details guy on some things, on other things he's not. I suspect if Peter had written this account, it would read a little bit different. There'd be some facts about sailing at night on the Sea of Galilee included here and you know all the different steps that they went through to survive. Matthew's just like, yeah, the boat was getting tossed around. Anyway, check this out. Right? We, we don't fully appreciate how difficult this situation is unless you're a Navy guy, which I'm not. Um, but their lives are in peril. It was at almost a regular occurrence in the evening for storms to kick up on the Sea of Galilee because the way the wind would come over the mountain range on both sides and plunge down into the sea, it created these great disturbances. It was like a normal occurrence, like a bad idea to try to cross the sea in the middle of the night. But Jesus told them to go, so they went. And now this is the reward they're getting for it. Come on. I hope you're hearing me by now. You try to do something you think that God wants you to do, and this is so often the outcome. You get in the middle of doing it, and you're like, well, this is going terribly. And it seems like God is nowhere involved. And so you start praying, Lord, I really need your help. I can't do this by myself. I'm getting kind of frustrated. I've been using some foul language. I'm getting irritated with people. Thankfully, I haven't done it in public yet, but it's definitely going on in the car when I'm beating the steering wheel. And you're praying. And the last thing that you expect to happen is God to start moving. But for the disciples, surely they're going, this is it. We're doomed. We were just trying to obey God. We're out here in the boat in the middle of the night, and it's a storm, and it's about to get capsized, and we're all going to die. And then and this happens. The fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost and cried out in fear. You see what I mean? This is an abnormal situation. God begins to move and they're terrified at first. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. <laughs> it is I do not be afraid. It's not uncommon for us to be afraid when God makes his presence, uh, his existence or his power known in our hearts and lives, even when we've been praying for it to happen. God, please show yourself in my life. Lord, I need to see you working. Lord, I want to. Uh, I want I want my life to be better. I need this situation to be dealt with. I'm broke or I'm uh, fill in the blank. Whatever your thing is, God starts to move and you're like, uh oh. Because it doesn't look like God moving usually at first. It looks like you losing a job. Yeah. Or it looks like your spouse is losing their mind. Or it looks like your kids are wilding out. But God is moving and you get scared. And the, the, the instinct ought to be to trust him. The instinct ought to be to reach out to him in prayer. The instinct ought to be to go, hey, God, I'm scared. Can we do something about this so that he can be chill out? It, it's me. It's me. Not that he's going to speak to you with an audible voice. If he does, please come see me after service. I think the reason is because God showing up doesn't tend to happen the way we would script it. Right? All right. I'm the only one that thinks that. Okay. It's going to make the rest of this sermon a little awkward. I think the reason is because God showing up doesn't tend to happen the way we would script it. Oh, oh, thank you. 
There are some commentators who believe Zechariah was praying for a son. You can tell by my face, I don't agree with that. I think he was praying for the redemption of God's people. And his prayer is heard, and God's answer began with Naomi, really. God's answer began with the fact that they would have a son. So verse 14, back in Luke 1. You will, have joy, <laughs> you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. The supernatural promise of a child in his old age, listen to me, right? The supernatural promise of a child in his old age was not just about fulfilling the desires of Zechariah's heart. But it wasn't not about that. So behold God in kindness Weaving together the desires of the sinner's heart with his divine purpose. I don't mean sinful desires. But do you see the heart of God towards you? The things that you want to see happen, the things that you desire, the things that you've been pursuing. And maybe you've been pursuing them into your old age and it just hasn't happened yet. And, and then, you know, maybe God's going to start moving and you're going to get terrified. But look at the promise that he makes, right? right, Like out of the gate, because you're going to have a kid. It's going to bring you great joy. It's going to bring you great joy and gladness. Not because we don't deserve his anger, but because he's full of mercy. The promise to Zechariah begins with, you will have joy and gladness. Because God does not have a hateful, angry, vengeful heart towards sinners. And men who preach quote-unquote right doctrine would do well to remember that God shows his mercy. And he does so with utter intentionality and strength. And we as creatures get our, we get our deepest glimpse of who he is. Not just in his sovereignty, but in his goodness. Not just in his greatness, but in his gentleness. Not just in his towering might, but also in his surpassing tenderness. God is all those things. He's not out to get you for your failure. Zechariah, like you, was a sinner. We're going to see that in a minute. But your sin actually has not stopped God from showing you kindness and love. The God who wove you together wants you to experience joy and gladness. To prove it, I would point out, I mean, right now you're sitting in church, hearing the gospel. Whatever got you here this morning, and however rough the road was to this second right now, and I know, like, I get it. We had had a brief handful of Sundays in 2021. And then some in 22 when we were still at the old building where Lisa and I and the kids all got to come to church in the same vehicle. Historically, never been the case for me. I've always been at church long before my family rolls in. But we had a few Sundays where we got to come together. And I can remember a couple of them that got a little dicey, like on the way in. Right. So however you got here, you're here. And the promise of the gospel is when it goes out, it always accomplishes what God intends. Gospel means good news. You're all tracking? So there's good news going out. And it's going to accomplish whatever he intends. So verse 15. 
Luke 1, 15. Um, he will be great before the Lord, but he must not drink wine or strong drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Throw away, line, somewhat tangential. Everyone who trusts Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? We'll see more about that in a moment. But consider this. Those of you who have been lied to and told that you can disturb the womb because that which is in it is just undifferentiated protoplasm and not a human being should take heed. Before Zechariah and Elizabeth's son was even born, while he was still in his mother's womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. There is no biblical record of the Holy Spirit filling anything other than a human being. 16, Luke 5. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the message, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that Zechariah's son John the Baptist would eventually preach was a message of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? He was supposed to be this pre-cursor, uh, preparer for the way of Jesus Christ. They were both on the earth at the same time and almost exactly the same age. Um, <clears throat> but John the Baptist went around Gathering people into groups to proclaim to them that they should turn from their sin. That's what repentance is. It just really could be viewed as a military term that means to turn. You're going this way, you turn, you go that way instead. And if you think about repentance in, in those terms, you can really be greatly helped. Because I know I, I heard at summer camp uh, when I was 14, 15 years old, you know, at the height of struggling with lust and uh, promiscuity, some jerk that claimed to be a gospel preacher standing up on the podium saying, if you repent, then you don't ever do that thing again. And just feeling like, oh, well, then I've never repented. Yeah, repentance means you turn and you don't go back. Okay. Well, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm shocked if that's the case. In fact, and I've said this quite a few times before, I haven't committed a new sin in the last quarter of a century. It's been the same ones. So if you think about repentance in terms of you, you drifted. You lost sight of the direction you're supposed to be going. You took your eyes off the prize and drifted off of course. You've got to turn to get back, right? And no matter how far you go down the road that you've drifted, the moment you turn, God is right there waiting to receive you. That's repentance. So in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul describes it like this. In 2 Corinthians 7, 9, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, <clears throat> not because my rebuke or exhortation made you sad, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. I'm crossing my eyes to see. Whereas worldly grief produces death. 
For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Well, you weren't before you repented. But when you repent, that's what happens. The return of uh, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, the, the, the discipline of yourself, your mind and your body to move in the direction that you know will be pleasing to God. So look at the turning that Gabriel pronounces or promises Zechariah's son will accomplish. Hearts of fathers to their children. Oh my gosh. It's almost like God knows human nature and understands what it is that needs to happen if we're going to move forward, if we're going to like progress and into flourishing instead of the hell that our culture mostly is in. Why are there so many fatherless homes? Partly because fathers have been raised not to give a rip about their kids. That's part of the problem. Other part of the problem is women have been taught, you don't need no man. In fact, there are government incentives not to have a husband. But the gospel of repentance that John will go out and preach will accomplish a turning of fathers' hearts to their children. The most important turning possible, probably, for a young child would be that of his own father's heart toward him. And for those of you who don't have that, and don't expect you'll have the pleasure of it. Can I just point out to you that this entire narrative and what it leads to, which is the birth of the Savior, is a picture of the Father in heaven and his heart of love for you and his desire for his heart to be with you and yours to be with him. That the God who created everything wants to be in fellowship with you, whatever your earthly father has or hasn't done. But that's a powerful repentance, right? Disobedient to repenting to wisdom and justice. We've seen people brought to wisdom by Jesus, haven't we? Wild, crazy kids coming back home, wayward spouses coming to their senses. And then there's like, I've had so many conversations with foolish neighbors or colleagues at work where you're just like, hmm. Let me give you a nugget of something that I think might be helpful here. And, and it, it's life-altering for them. A little wisdom goes a long ways. The promises to Zechariah concerning John's message of repentance will be echoed in, and I think surpassed by the promise that Mary gets concerning her son later in this chapter. Because he's the one that actually accomplishes these things. 18, Luke 1. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Because an angel just told you, you doofus. Right? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. I mean, he's, you can hear how insulted he is by Zechariah's response. And behold, you know what? You'll be silent. That's how you'll know. Because you're going to shut up. You'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you didn't believe my words, 
which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. They're wondering at his delay in the temple. Yeah, they were. Because if you, I mean, they tied a rope around the ankles of the high priest when he went in to make atonement, just in case God killed him. They could pull him back out. That is not hyperbole. Anyway, but this guy's just making an incense offering. So they're wondering what's taking so long. Um, when he came out, verse 22, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. <laughs> we would probably like to assume that if Gabriel showed up while we were praying, we would have no trouble believing whatever he told us. Right? Light. Some almost, I imagine, baffling brightness. This creature, it's almost indescribable, standing before you. Like, you're either hallucinating... Which is, I, I would probably lean that direction. Or, and then this creature starts to speak, and what he says is, like, coherent. It makes sense. It relates to the situation that you're in. You'd like to think you would just believe, but here's the deal. I am telling you something. Uh, so, let's say I've been going for half an hour right now. We'll say 35 minutes. In the last 35 minutes, I have been telling you something infinitely better than what Gabriel told Zechariah, and I bet there's people in this room that aren't even paying attention. I bet. And there have been a couple of moments while I'm preaching that I stopped paying attention. <laughs> We're just humans. Feet of clay, man. Cracked pots prone to wander. Aren't we? In John 14, 25, Jesus says, these things... I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. I'm talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life and heart of a believer, right? The Spirit indwells the, the believer in such a way that the very Spirit of Christ is with you so that as you go through your day-to-day -day life, you do it with a companion that never leaves. What a promise. Talk about handling the human malady of loneliness and isolation. You've got somebody you can talk to anytime. So Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then in the next chapter, John 15, 26, he says, When the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus after his glorification to help, to tell us the truth, to bear witness about Jesus. Zechariah's unbelief in the presence of the angel Gabriel uh, resulted in, in him being, you know, put on mute for nine months. Also an answer to Zechariah's question, though, right? So these two things here again, woven together. How am I going to know? How am I going to know, Gabriel? And Gabriel's like, you're going to know because you're going to shut up. <laughs> and then he did. And that's how Zechariah knew. For nine months, he was like, man, I really can't talk. I should have listened 
Because I could be out here telling everybody right now what's about to happen, and I can't tell anybody. See, God doesn't work the way we expect God to work, right? And we're hearing a, a message this morning uh, from the inspired word of God that's a far more important message than the one that Zechariah heard. Facts. And not because I'm the one talking. Don't misunderstand me. The consequences, the consequences of not believing the message that I'm sharing with you are far more severe than the consequences Zechariah experienced for not believing Gabriel. Zechariah had, I think, an understandable human limitation thing going on where he's like, I'm old, my wife's old, you're saying she's going to have a baby. Mm. I don't know. And the angel's like, zip it. You are hearing that God Almighty, enthroned on high, who created everything with words, who sent his only son to be killed so that your sin could be taken away, and all those who believe in him are saved from sin and death and hell. You're hearing that. What do you think the consequences are for not believing that? Way worse. Way bigger deal. Verse 24, Luke 1. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days uh, when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the whole point of the Christmas story that's going to unfold for us over the next three weeks. This Jesus came to take away reproach. He came to take away my reproach. You know what reproach is? It's shame or disgrace. And there isn't, there isn't one of us in this room that doesn't have plenty of shame and disgrace. I told you at the beginning, I might not know about it, and I kind of hope I never do, but I know you've got it. And I, let me just tell you, I've got it too. I've said it before. There's things, if you knew about, like on Judgment Day, when the, the scroll gets rolled out and they start working through all of my stuff, you're going to be like, that was my pastor? No, I don't mean right now, today. I mean historically. There are things that I've done that are shameful, disgraceful things. But Jesus came to take that now, he came to deal with fear, shame, and guilt so that you can walk with a friend that sticks closer than a brother, with a companion that never leaves you and never forsakes you. You want your shame taken away? You want your reproach dealt with? There's only one way that's going to happen, and that's in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the question at hand, and that will be at hand for the next three weeks, is will you believe? Not in Santa and Rudolph, but in the Savior of sinners who was sent by the heart of the Father to redeem sons and daughters from every generation. Let's pray.